Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Over 20% of children are arriving at school vulnerable, disadvantaged and not able to learn. And then when you look at our results going further down the track, NAPLAN, the PISA results, which are international testing, Australia is going backwards and rapidly. So that is why intervening in the early years is the most important and will have the most impact for our country. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. It's my pleasure today to introduce to Short Black an incredible woman who's largely flown under the radar for a very long time, but she's now found her voice and we're here to elevate it. Most of Australia might have seen her recently featured on Australian Story as the undercover billionaire. Nicola Forrest, welcome to Short Black. Oh, thank you, Sandra. It's a real privilege to be here with you this morning. Now, one of the things you're really passionate about is the early intervention in childcare and making childcare universal, regardless of what happened in the election. Why are you passionate about that? It's a lifetime of being a mother and raising a family. And I suppose if I go back even further, growing up in the country, New South Wales, and really believing that, you know, what a great life. And if you work hard, you, you can do well in Australia. What a great country. And over the years and through my own life experiences, I have seen our country go backwards and it's reached a point where we have to stand up and ask for a greater leadership and a greater vision for our future and particularly for our children. And that's why advocating for early childcare and a universal system that's accessible and high quality is absolutely at the heart of all the work that Mindaroo Foundation really stands for, which is about if you see unfairness trying to create opportunity for everyone and actually building stronger communities. The reality is you've got the resources to move that dial and you have in terms of the public discourse around this issue. We featured Natalie Walker in the first of this series on Short Black and she's clearly as passionate as you and I must confess I I met you however many weeks ago and you were trying to elevate the voice and this issue which you've done successfully. You've raised the issue to such a point where people, I don't believe, consider it anymore to be a women's issue. And that's been a significant part of what you've been doing. Why is that so important? Concentrating on early childhood actually unpacks a whole lot of issues that we are facing today, not just for women, but for the economy. Two years ago, we launched the Thrive by Five campaign and Jay Weatherall joined our team, which was fantastic. And, you know, having his political insights actually really changed my own trajectory in where I was focusing on, which is around the over 20% of children that are arriving at school vulnerable, disadvantaged and not able to learn. And that reverberates through our education system because then teachers who are being criticised and saying they're not doing their job, a lot of them have had to turn into social workers rather than educators. And then when you look at our results going further down the track, NAPLAN, the PISA results, which are international testing, Australia is going backwards and rapidly. So that is why 
intervening in the early years is the most important and will have the most impact for our country. What I found fantastic is not just seeing what you're achieving, but you used early case studies. A school, I think it was Chalice Creek in WA. Walk us through what that experience was like and what you learned from that, because it was about the appointment of a health officer at every primary school. How does that change the outcome? Chalice Primary School is a fantastic example and a partnership that Mindaroo, you know, I was very fortunate to meet the headmistress, Lee Mezumuchi. She actually was on the Australian story. I'm pretty sure they want to do one on her now. She's amazing. And it is about leadership, but it's also about the fact that Lee was not prepared to accept that her children had to stay below the national standards. In fact, the state, their NAPLAN results were way below the NAPLAN standards. So she understood that getting kids at the school gate at five was too late. And that's what all the science and evidence shows. If you can set children up for success, that trajectory will take them on. So Lee used an empty building on the school site. She didn't ask for permission. She just got on with the job. She approached us and Mindaroo Foundation helped support her approach, which was to have wraparound services all there on the one school ground so that when the young mothers were coming to school with their five-year-old and with a toddler on their hip or in the pram, She started a playgroup. She started making a safe place so that these mothers would come and she'd say, why don't you come and have a cup of tea? She organised for them to have screening for hearing, any problems the children might have had. And it was also a partnership with the Curtin University. So the students could, from occupational therapists to speech therapists, see these kids. So it wasn't costing any more money. You know, everything was, how do we do the best with what we've got? And um, Chalice was able to turn around the NAPLAN results within four years of those children because those two and three-year-olds that she was intervening with early, by the time they hit pre-primary and year one where the first testing is, they were already above the state average. So what they've really done is detected early cognitive development issues. It might be dyslexia, it might be mental health issues, might be health issues. And by doing that, you kill that cycle of poverty. You know, by the time they start primary school, they're already way behind the dial, aren't they? Exactly. Look, my own children had, a couple of them had a few learning difficulties that were picked up early in their pre-primary or before that. And I was referred to someone and that would have affected them all the way through school. So imagine children that don't get that sort of service. So you're absolutely right. And the earlier you intervene, particularly around autism and dyslexia, the quicker you can turn that around. But also the other part of it was the social side. So a lot of these families were suffering from domestic violence or other issues. And It was a safe place where they could share that and and they could get referred. So instead of it being more complicated for families, it was one place to go. And that is really what we're advocating. Somewhere in every community, it could be on the school grounds, could be in the hospital. We have a really good maternal health system and we have a pretty good education system. But those five years in in between, from birth to school, kids fall through the cracks. And that's where we're trying to focus. So when I met you, it was through Women for Progress. This is another arm to what you do. Explain it for us. So Women for Progress is a group that I convened with Wendy McCarthy. Women from all political persuasions and lived experiences. And what we wanted to have was many voices, one message. And we were, you know, people that we reached out to that I didn't even know. And so I've met these extraordinary women, including Natalie Walker. And really, we came together to say what we need to move the dial that things have gone backwards in this country for women and what are the issues that we want to take and put on the table to the government and we put a budget submission in. So coming together and saying, okay, how do we align? And, you know, that in itself was quite an interesting process because of COVID. We met online 
the, always the intention was we'd come together in Sydney and we still haven't all met as a group. But it's been fantastic to hear people like Sam Moston, people like Lucy Turnbull, you know, these articulate, intelligent, Ming Long, Natalie Walker coming from their place. But yet we all agreed that what are the major issues facing women? And it was around participation, safety and the leadership and the gender pay gap. So what are the things that we want to ask for that will make the biggest difference for women and for the economy, but women focused? And I was obviously thrilled when early childhood learning system was number one with Women for Progress, the same as Thrive by Five. So I found that really reassuring because this has been a path that I have been saying the first thousand days for a long time. What do you think you learned from those women? that a lot of them have been saying this for a lot longer. Look, it's bringing those different perspectives. Again, it's that about the diversity in decision-making. So what it taught me was that no matter where you come from, this is why this is an issue. And instead of focusing necessarily on the most disadvantaged, which is where my focus has been around children, the gender equity bit has become much more something that I've learned and grown into because I think I'm of the generation where... I've accepted the norms. You know, I didn't get maternity leave. I mean, I worked for myself, so who was going to give me maternity leave? But, you know, we've rehauled our own businesses looking at paid parental leave. Actually, it's taught me a lot about what levers actually help empower and enable us to unlock more than half of our population, 51%. It's the eternal frustration, isn't it, the gender equity pay gap? And we never seem to be able to close it because it's still being dismissed as a women's issue. Yes. So what I'm thrilled about is that during the course of the last 18 months and having all these different spokeswomen, the press have really come on board. And, and you know, we've invited them in, we've given them information, we've funded research. And I feel like the most important thing is that we have the economic argument. And okay, that's why we pay Treasury, they should be able to work it out, but it seems like we're going to have to keep doing more, diving more deeply. So Danielle Wood from the Grattan Institute is another one of our members and there's fantastic information out there and that's the journey that I've been on that I actually, it does make me optimistic because this is the social reform and the opportunity for this country to really rise and empower the number one highly educated women in the world here in Australia. So not only focusing on disadvantaged children and families, but at the moment, the system or lack thereof penalises a lot of other Australians and particularly our most educated. Well, women in this country are the most educated per capita in the world and yet our participation rates are around about, you know, 70th in the world. And that's fallen enormously since 2006 when it was last measured. That's the frightening thing. All those statistics around women in Australia have fallen. So, you know, people can pat themselves on the back and say we're doing a good job, but we're not. But the results show that we're not. And the biggest growing number of homeless people is women over 55. And again, I think the education, you asked me what I've learned, it is actually inextricably linked to those early years of being a mother because women generally go out of the workforce, they lose their superannuation, and then if you've had domestic violence and they don't get back in, they can only do part-time work. We have to stop talking about it as a women's issue and men will only listen if you sell the business case. Exactly. And instrumental in doing that was, correct me if I'm wrong, why you got Jay Weatherill on board, the former South Australian Premier? And how has he changed the dial in terms of this conversation and getting genuine outcomes? Yeah, well, Jay, obviously, being ex-Premier, understands the political process and brings that huge element of understanding and notwithstanding that he was Education Minister and understands the whole idea of why it's so important to invest in the early years. So we have been funding work with the Centre for Policy Development and they've come up with a Better Start report, which I really urge people to have a look at. 
because it's not it's it's setting out a trajectory of what we could do to give a guarantee to all children that are born in Australia of a better outcome and how we might go about that. Also with Jay, understanding that at the moment the jurisdiction around childcare is seen as a welfare issue or a women's issue rather than a health and education and a more broadly the future prosperity of our country issue, which is really what it's about, productivity. So that's the conversation that we are leading to and I actually caught up with the BCA and they fully support that Better Start report. But again, they want to do some more economic modelling. So that's where we're heading down. You know, And I've always said that politicians will only listen to us if we've got the economic argument. And three years ago, we took the cost of late intervention report to Canberra. So that was pre-COVID. And at that point, it was a conservative figure, but we are spending over $15 billion a year on programs for children between the ages, you know, up to the age of 20 and on mental health issues. You know, the statistics are appalling. And so... People say, how can we afford to invest in early childcare? But the fact is we can't afford not to because those numbers, of course, we've got to look after those people that have fallen through the cracks. But if we don't start investing earlier, that number's just going to keep increasing. Everyone's battered at the moment about issues and there are so many and that can force you to dive back into your hole and not want to put your head above the parapet. Do you accept that people suffer a degree of empathy fatigue where they can't really take on anything more than what's just in front of them? I think life life is tough. Life is busy. And for a lot of people, I mean, that's become one of the biggest issues in this last election was the cost of living. So, yes, I do think people are fatigued. And that is why I think there's no silver bullet. But if we keep doing things the same way in Australia, we're not going to get a difference. So hopefully with some new decision makers and more diversity around the table and a focus on long-term vision of where we want this country to go, we can actually change the dial. Now, you've had so much privilege, really, for a very long time. Girl from Spices Creek, grew up on the farm. A strange story, I thought, was um, a really wonderful insight into your family. What was it like for you seeing your own story featured so much? I think even your daughter said, and you'd been advised to always walk two steps behind your husband because you would never be seen. You know, I grew up with a mother who I'm incredibly proud of, but she got very frustrated her entire life being seen as Sid Sully's wife. Was that ever a conscious light bulb moment for you that you were never Nicola Forrest, you were Andrew Forrest's wife? I don't think I felt in that way. Obviously, Andrew is a, 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 a he's larger than life. So he, um, he is someone that can take up, you know, a lot of the space in the room and, and that's why I love him because he's, you know, got the enthusiasm and the passion to make things happen. And so I've very much felt like we're a team. And also I have never wanted to be in the limelight. So I've actually been very comfortable not being. And it has been a conscious decision because of that privilege. I have felt I have had opportunities to have a platform to advocate for perhaps those people that haven't had a voice. But it's scary, isn't it? Oh, I find it incredibly intimidating. I actually really do. Thinking about coming on here this morning with you, Sandra, <laughs> I found that very intimidating indeed. <laughs> That's crazy because you've worked, you know, the halls of federal parliament, you've knocked on doors at every level of society. So, um, you know, given the life you now live, I wouldn't think many things would intimidate you anymore. I think when you really care about something, you want to try and get it right. And I do have a propensity to talk too much and too quickly. And I think there's so much going on 
in my life, I, I, I can say, and that can look like a lot of privilege and I'm not complaining, but sometimes I feel, how do I keep the priorities of where, what are the most important things that, that I want to see my life being involved with? A turning point, I suspect, for you in this recent journey and iteration was actually speaking at the National Press Club last year. That was huge. And I did have some wonderful people at the Mindaroo team that helped support me and, and encourage me because, you know, I was meditating five minutes before. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I need to do more of that, I think. But it makes us all feel really normal, you know, because we all suffer our own insecurities in one way or another. And people might think because I sit there on the telly that I'm really comfortable in every sphere and you're just not. You're human. Exactly. I actually met with a couple of the Teal Independents this week just to hear about what they're doing and how we can support them on policies that I think need to be elevated. And um, it was interesting to hear them all say that, you know. Also, I think it's very much a, a female thing that we think, am I good enough? And putting ourselves out there. Yeah. It's a common thread for women that we take a back seat. Why do you think that is? I think it's part of our caring nature and I think it's also a holistic approach and that's why I'm actually so excited about these independents that are standing because if you look at the decision-making that's happening in this country, I think it is a true reflection that there isn't enough diversity around the decision-making table because I do think women take a different approach. And I think they understand family and core values that need to be part of the decision-making. And someone last week, was we were talking about the budget and that apparently in this last budget, children were mentioned four times and I thought that was appalling. And this person I was talking with said, well, guess how many times climate was discussed? Once mentioned the word climate in the budget. Apparently, I haven't listened to the whole budget. <laughs> bit frightening where our focus is. Yeah, it is. The election's been and gone. At the end of the day, you're going to maintain your rage on universal childcare and its access? Absolutely. We're not going anywhere. We said that at the press conference when we spoke at the press club. And um, actually, Thrive by Five has over 70 partners now and polling or however they work out these numbers. So it apparently represents more than a million people, families in particular, and people in the childcare sector working there, teachers, we're not going anywhere. This is social reform that this country needs. And I think, if anything, people are crying out for long-term leadership and a vision. And this is not women's issues, as we said earlier in the start. It's not, this is not just about women. It's about the economy. And it's about making life easier for families, not harder. One of the big areas that you and your husband have made a big splash in is in the area of philanthropy. And, of course, saying that essentially you're going to give away most of your wealth before you die. Do you remember those early conversations with Andrew and how that all began? We actually discussed it before we got married, which rather took me aback at the time, but, you know, that sort of said, what do you really want to do with your life, Andrew? And, and he said, and don't laugh at this, but he said, I want to make a lot of money. I want to make $50 million, which was a lot of money. This is, we're talking, we've been married for 30 years, and I want to give most of it away. And I went, wow, wow, that's really interesting, amazing, okay. I don't think I asked how you're going to make $50 million. <laughs> <laughs> but hang on a minute. What about our children? Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so Anaconda Nicole, Andrew and I moved from Sydney to Perth when our children, when our girls were very little. They were, Sophia had her first birthday in Perth, so they were 14 months apart. That was actually quite a stressful time for me, moving to a new city, even though Perth's fantastic, without all the support networks. And I think that began my insight into how hard it is for families. I mean, I was someone that had, you know, I did have support and I did have help. I ran my own small business and I had someone helping me. But um, 
we moved because Andrew started Anaconda Nickel. It was very, it was hard work and we were there for a couple of years and it started to become this huge success story. And so that conversation about the 50 million suddenly was becoming a reality that the share price went up extraordinarily. And look, I don't remember the numbers and it doesn't matter. But we both agreed that once the share price hit a certain price, anything above that, we were just going to give that money away because that was more than enough than we needed. So it's always been there in the forefront. Anyway, Anaconda, things didn't quite go to plan. It was a tough time for you both. It was a very tough time, but it actually was the catalyst for the starting of our foundation when Andrew got ousted pretty much from the company. Well, he did, and he got a payout. And we said, let's use that money to set up the foundation. What was lovely was, I think it was Sophia said, you told the kids, and she was about six, (laughs) and she said, I'm not sure you can hold me. You know, we kind of said, yeah, that's great, mum and dad, but, you know, I'm six, I don't really understand what that means. You're going to give away everything. Philanthropy in this country has its drawbacks. There's a perception around it, and I think one of your children's kind of acknowledged that it's difficult. You two are essentially becoming the Bill and Melinda Gates of Australia. What's been the response since that announcement that you're going to give away 22-odd billion dollars? It's like Monopoly, isn't it? (laughs) Not from where I sit. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I, I would have to say that I think whatever people do, it's their choice. We were very much encouraged to become public in our giving. We did join the Giving Pledge, which Bill and Melinda Gates started. And that's actually been a really great opportunity to meet a lot of other people in a similar position and learn what they're trying to do within their own communities or internationally and combine forces in a number of things with the Blue Nature Alliance and other programs that we have helped fund. Giving it away is actually much harder than you can imagine because Andrew's a very good businessman. I've enjoyed business as well. We actually both believe, being very strong as proud Australians, we love investing in Australia. We love building businesses here. Buying back R.M. Williams has been one of the greatest things we've done. You saved R.M. Williams, didn't you? And the fact that it came back into Australian hands has resonated with so many people. And that's very much the ethos of where we come from. So we believe we can create almost more opportunities through business, sustainable business. But anything that is there that in the end, we want to make sure that it's set, we've set up a foundation focuses on a lot of different areas, arresting unfairness in people and planet and around building stronger communities. And I'm really proud of that work and I think it's going to obviously, it's got a lot more to go. Do you find people chasing you? I mean, that's the hardest thing when you're wealthy, people chasing you to give to them. Look, everybody has a need and I think one of the hard things is that you have to have some sort of focus or you're not going to create impact. For us, the most important thing is you want to be able to try and create the most impact you can with the time you've got and the resources that you have. And the most important thing is partnering with the right people. You know, we can't do everything. It's not, it's not that we're doing it. It's actually backing leadership. And what I would say, Sandra, is that often it's not about money. Why is sustainability so important to the two of you? I think having that country background, understanding the importance of the land, understanding the scarcity of resources, in particular water in this country. And over the last 10 years, you know, our foundation, or since we started, we have responded to some of the major bushfires and floods across the country and given support through the foundation. And I'm really proud of the work that the Fire and Flood Resilience Project is working now. So again, it's about prevention. So I think it's important because for me, and this came up in the Australian story, I hate waste of any sort, but in particular, waste of human capital and human people, you know, seeing lives not reaching their full potential. 
and then the land and the country. I, I've seen, you know, we've bought back a number of cattle stations and I've been very involved with that and seeing the land degraded and overstocked and destroyed and then being able to manage it in a way that you can see it coming back. The environment is going to outlive all of us. And I think David Attenborough's final speech, you know, is so beautiful how he summed that up because he was actually appealing to the selfishness of man. And so for me, the sustainability is important because we need to look after what we've got. I'll put my critics hat on for a minute. And some critics will say to you, well, you've got a private jet, you fly about at your will. How do you justify that carbon footprint? And and what do you say to the critics when they find those issues about the way you live? Yeah. First of all, I don't have the private jet. (laughs) If you don't, why not? I I, I do get to travel on it occasionally. (laughs) And, And I would say the work that Andrew has done in the last couple of years using that private jet extensively He, during COVID in the last couple of years, has travelled the world and has created resource opportunities around renewable energy around the world and is really trying to race the time to help climate change. So I know it seems like it's contradictory and I do often challenge him and don't worry, our children challenge us more than anyone. But I think you have to sometimes outweigh the time things take and to get to places which otherwise you wouldn't be able to get there. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Over the last couple of series of Short Black, we've elevated the voice of executive assistants. And I did note in Australian Story that you did a Bachelor of Arts in, really, business studies. I've ended up where I've ended up, but I really started life as a production assistant which is like an EA, but just in television. So many women find their voice later in life and don't necessarily know what they want to do, which in essence is your story as well. You knew you were smart enough to do things. You just didn't know what you wanted to do. Would that be a fair assessment? Do you know, I applied and got a scholarship to do early childhood teaching, which is interesting. I always loved going through university. I did a lot of babysitting to pay for my bills. And I always loved children, so I thought that was a good thing. So it's funny that I've come all the way around. Yes, I think career advice and mentoring kids at school, I think it's so important. What I have tried to say to people because of my own journey is doesn't really matter what you study. What are you passionate about? And then follow that. And I think I was always, I always loved my horses and loved the country, and so I hadn't had that wider sphere to understand. But you did a lot of part-time work over the years, you know, getting yourself around uh, Europe and coming back, working as a cook for Susan Renouf, of all people. What was it like then? You must have some funny stories. Oh, do you know, I, w- I was there when the 19, the, the big crash, just before she separated from Sir Francis Renouf, 
and I was there at Twas on Tour. I was there in the house. I think I was covering the news that day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was such fun. And I, look, it wasn't a very long-lived job because of what happened. And I got that job, not because I was a trained chef, but a friend of mine who was, was asked to do it. And she said, oh, I know someone else that might be able to. I actually did work as an executive assistant in a number of different businesses. And I really, my first job was in international trading, so import-export. And I did work in publishing. I did learn from men, they were men, I always had male bosses, but I did learn from people that sort of the wrapping around of business and what they did. And I enjoyed that side of it, but I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. So yeah, I did. I mean, I always felt I wanted to travel and see more. So I think there's no better education, actually. No, exactly. Religion plays quite a big part in, in your and Andrew's life. Is that a fair statement? I think, I think if you spoke to my mother, she'd say it probably doesn't pay enough. You know, I think when we first got married, you know, my parents had said, well, we take marriage very seriously. And Andrew and I, and I would actually recommend this to anyone, went through a little bit of counselling with the minister about, you know, questions about your life and things like that. And really practical things as well, like, you know, have you talked about having children? And going back to that earlier conversation about what about the children? I said, oh, yeah, absolutely, straight away. And you're filling them out in a piece of paper. He wrote, oh, not for five years. And so it makes you confront and have those conversations before you get married. So I think we compromised and it was three. <laughs> in that story, you tearfully told us that you and your husband having lost one. And that was a really beautiful moment, actually, to see that vulnerability in you both. That was, you know, when you think about things in life. And I, when, we, when I was pregnant with Grace someone I knew had a stillborn baby and I couldn't speak to them. I, I, I felt like, oh, my God, I'm so lucky I had to have my baby and I couldn't think of anything worse to have happened to someone and so I couldn't talk about it. And then when it happened to me, I, I understood why people did that to me. I mean, you still sort of go through all the stages of grief and um, blame yourself, blame other people, don't know what's going on, get angry, get sad. It's a very confusing time and very tough on relationships, you know. And I, and I was lucky because I had two daughters at home. I, had, I didn't go home to empty arms. For those mothers that go home and it's their first baby, I, I can't imagine. Yes, a good friend of mine went through that and I'll never forget it. No. Really, really difficult. Another thing was when Andrew had popped the question... And then he changed his mind. And your physical reaction on Australian stories, you sort of, you wiped your hands and well, I'm done, I'm going overseas, don't contact me. <laughs> so you're ready to walk away. That represents a strength of self and a confidence that if you don't see enough of me now, you know, I don't need you either. Where do you think that came from? I think I was actually still suffering from perhaps being hurt in a previous relationship. And so... Perhaps I was taking that into our relationship and Andrew sensed that. So maybe it was a journey. I think I had to go on that journey. But I was so shocked and so hurt because he knew I'd really opened up to Andrew and shared with him something that obviously had profoundly affected me and really felt like we were soulmates. And then for that to happen, I was like, I can't believe this. And in fact, it wasn't wiping my hands. It was pulling the ring off. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was doing. You sort of pulled the ring off and kind of pretended to throw it at And I did throw it. <laughs> but... It was actually so important for both of us that we went through that because I think by that we became stronger and I went away and, and I do make the joke, I don't know if this came out in Australian story, that it's about the only time he ever listened to me and did what I asked him <laughs> because I couldn't believe it. He didn't contact me. But um, I ended up getting myself 
I travelled a bit. I ended up in Vienna. I got a job with the United Nations, and it was a it was again a part time job. By this stage, I'd reengaged with the enemy. <laughs> We'd started talking, and um, I was offered a full time job, and I shared that with him, and he was over within within the week. And because I thought, yeah, I'm going to do this because how amazing! I've made friends in Vienna. I was quite enjoying it. I was there when the last I was going into Prague because Czechoslovakia is next door. I'd been in there a couple of times, and um, just thought, wow, this is an exciting place to be. And anyway, Andrew arrived and we actually did a road trip through Czechoslovakia and um, he proposed to me again. And I was, amazingly, because I think I was quite grumpy. We were looking for where we were going to stay and no, he kept saying, no, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough. And I was exhausted. Anyway, he asked me again and I accepted. And we then and there agreed on the Czechoslovakian pact, which we have taken with us throughout our lives about if we agree on something, we can never go back and say, you made me do this or I didn't want to do it. On big decisions, you know, we'll say, okay, this is a Czechoslovakian pact. We're doing it together, which I think has been really strong. Clearly your family's very strong. And I noted recently one of your daughters became engaged to her girlfriend. Not all families would deal with it the way you did. Look, we are just delighted for Sophia. And, and, and amazingly, I think Andrew's just straight away bang. There wasn't, it's not an issue about her being with another woman. It was about her being happy and Sophia's never been happier in all her life. My only reticence was that Sophia's never really been in love before. Certainly I wouldn't have handled it the way she has with all the social media, but that's, that's the next generation, you know, plastering photos everywhere and people know. But it's absolutely gorgeous. And I'm here in Sydney, obviously, with you today. I had dinner with the girls the night before last and um, Zara said, oh, do you just want to have a mother-daughter dinner? And I said, what do you mean? You're my daughter too. And she just gave me the biggest hug. And they are so good for each other that we're delighted. In the current debate, though, you know, for diversity and inclusion, the fact that you and your husband were so embracing of your daughter's journey, I think, says a lot about who you are. And, you know, let's face it, we were born 50s, 60s, 70s. The world was so different then. Who knows what complications those next generation of kids might have, but I think if you're in a loving environment and being nurtured, then that's what children need. And taking people on, on their values and what they stand for is far more important than their gender. It is a strange new world, though, isn't it? You know, you talk about social media and um, the gender issues, the race issues, the, the issues are endless. I mean, let's, let's look at Roe versus Wade in the States, which is unravelling women's rights as we speak. When you look at those issues and what it says about the times we're in, do you feel uncomfortable or are you optimistic? I'm an eternal optimist. So I don't want to say, you know, I think sometimes I can feel like Groundhog Day that I thought I've said this before, we haven't made progress. But actually, when you look back, we are making incremental steps. I do worry about the future of the world and the fractiousness that we are facing and the wider distance between people that have nothing and the less and less people that have more. And, you know, that People might laugh and go, oh, well, that's easy for you to say you're worried about it. I'm at one end of that spectrum. But our society, even here in Australia, you know, I go to the Kimberley, I, I travel around the country, I get to meet people, I go to the coalface, and things aren't improving despite billions of dollars that we've spent to try and improve outcomes for, for our Indigenous Australians who by far and away are overrepresented on every level of disadvantage and look at prisons and recidivism. But I'm just looking at country towns and places where there's there's violence and unrest. And I think, my God, this is Australia in 2022. How have we got here? And we can do better. Do you still think 
the little girl from Spices Creek still plays a big part in you. Can you still feel and see that girl from Spices Creek? You've made me cry. <laughs> um, I do, actually. Family means everything to me. And when I bring up still seeing that girl from Spices Creek, you get emotional like I do when I think about my childhood. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I guess it's deep in your DNA. Oh, God, sorry. And it was a wonderful child. You know, it was, a, it was an idyllic childhood on a farm. We didn't have a lot, but we thought we had everything, really. Yeah. When I got interviewed for the Women's Weekly, I don't know if you saw that article, but Angus Fontaine came up to Mindaroo Station and one of the first questions he asked me, we were having breakfast, and he said, do you ever think about Gillinghall where I grew up? And I looked at him and I started to cry and I said, I still dream about the road driving out there, which is amazing, the dirt road, you know, you know, the corners and everything like that. I think of myself on my horse and mustering cattle or, you know, working in the shearing shed or in the sheep yards. I mean, it's just your happy place and it's where you have all your childhood memories. How did COVID affect you? We were very lucky. I mean, we were in Western Australia. We're now still suffering because we're so much further behind everyone else because we've been locked away. But Life, you know, for the first few months actually had all the children at home. When would we have ever had that? When they're in their 20s. So that was amazing. And then travelling, I mean, being in Western Australia, we weren't wearing masks. We were so far behind everyone else. So obviously you're cut off from your family. I've got family in the eastern states and it makes you realise how much we take for granted. The last couple of years in this country, it's not just COVID. We've had, you know, horrendous bushfires and floods. What do you think the last couple of years of hardship and confronting heartbreak has taught you about us as a nation? I think we're an incredibly resilient nation and the way people rise up and help each other in disasters is, is overwhelming, isn't it? It's, it's really humbling to see people stand up. I think it's also highlighted that we don't prepare enough in advance and, we, and, and I think it speaks to that whole notion of long-term planning that we I hope, that through all this heartache that we have seen and, and problems, that we realise we have to think and take issues more seriously, like climate change. That this isn't just a one in a hundred year thing or this is, it's not going to happen again. It's going to happen more and more and we have to be prepared for it. Nicola Forrest, you've been an absolute joy to get to know. Thanks for being so honest and real and good luck with Thrive by Five. I sincerely hope you succeed here because... Our future generations rely on your passion and dedication to seeing a real outcome. So congratulations for all that you do and thanks for spending some time with us here at Short Black. Oh, thank you, Sandra. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.